This Kendra is where they make their mark. This is the time where you've got to turn the table. You've got to take advantage and ride this wave in this momentum. Look out! Welcome back to the Coach's Corner podcast during the COVID-19 crisis. Callum Williams here alongside Kindra D. St. Aubin. And our latest guest is the newest man in the Minnesota United coaching ranks, Sean McCauley. Uh, Sean, thank you very much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. Um, unprecedented times at the moment. How on earth are you coping? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. You know, you, you cope because you have to and, and everybody else is going through a really difficult time for you. You just have to make the most of what what's being thrown at you. Uh, difficult for for me and my family at the minute because we don't have our furniture. That's getting oh. shipped up from Florida, uh, so that should be with us in a couple of days. Uh, but you know we've got the got the basics, the essentials. We've got the food, and you know we're just trying to stay safe and stay away from everybody. Yeah, absolutely. What um, what have you been doing? To keep you occupied, then, for example, have you had any opportunity to watch any things on Netflix or Amazon or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got you know more time than what you would want, uh, what you would expect. But we we do have you know quite a, a list, you know, a database of players and, and games that we can access. Even though there's no live games, you know, we can we can get you know just about every game for the last few years right up until when it got shut down. And, and and that's basically every game, majority of games around the world. So we check in with each other. And, you know, we're watching players in different positions. And, you know, it's just a little bit, you know, not confusing. It's a little bit unsettling because nobody knows when these players are coming out of contract because of what's happening with, with the European scene. Do you find yourself at all looking at the weekend and going, man... San Jose was supposed to be here this weekend. Red Bulls, you know what I mean? Like, that's what I found myself doing, like, looking back at the last few weekends, going, this is what was supposed to be happening on this day, and instead we're doing this or that. Yeah, it's really difficult. And it's more of, you know, routine. You know, you get into a routine that you train and then you play, and, you know, the weekends are generally for the games, and that and that's it. And now, you know, you, you've really got... Not, I wouldn't say it's nothing to look forward to, but it's, it's, you've got <laughs> nothing in your routine. It's a whole new normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's bizarre, to say the least. Um, let's talk about you as a player then, shall we? You had uh, a very intriguing playing career before we talk about coaching in Minnesota United. I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but you actually started your youth career at Manchester United. What was that experience like being at such a gargantuan club? It, it was good, it, and you know, I would say that's given me a good grounding into the majority of probably football values that I have. Um, I was there for I, I went full time from from school, um, so I left school at sixteen, like everybody in the UK does or did at that time, and uh, I went straight into to Manchester United, and, and I had a I had four years there, I had two years where you have to be an uh, an apprentice professional trainee player um, and then two years as a professional and uh, it was really good you know you play playing with and mm-hmm. alongside some great players and, and you're meeting great people and then you know at the end of it I didn't break through to the first team so it then becomes a business decision and the manager pulled me in his office and told me he told me so I thought great I'm on the, <laughs> I'm on the move um, 
so so it was good though. It's good. I, I really enjoyed my time there. Can you give us some of the names that uh, people would recognize listening to this that you were there with either as an apprentice or in your time as you continue to move up before you were sold somewhere else? It's, you know, everybody talks about the the class of 92 um, mm. and they were all there. So when when I was a, a professional, they were all in the, the youth training program. So they were mm. all full-time players as, as apprentices. But before that, there was another era when when the manager, when the boss came in, he he first put a group of players in, they were called the Fergie Fledglings. Um, <laughs> and, and they were good, really good young players. And, and a lot went on to have good careers. But the names in that group that first went in, that never really sort of kicked on with the first team because they never mm-hmm. had the, the success, was uh, Lee Sharp, mm-hmm. Russell Beardsmore, Lee Martin, mm-hmm. who scored the winning goal in the cup final, mm-hmm. and Sir Alex Ferguson's first trophy. Um, you know, and Mark Robbins, who obviously got you know, the goal in the FA Cup tie that that's supposedly have kept the manager in a job. So they were a group of players that I was mm-hmm. I was like sort of grew up with and, and played in the in the reserve team with and they broke through in the first team. And then obviously you had the younger players coming through, which was Nicky Butt, David Beckham, the Neville brothers, mm-hmm. you know, all of all of them players. And there, and there were players in that group who who played a few games uh and moved on to different clubs like Ben Thornley, John O'Kane and you know, but the core of that group were were phenomenal. And we all knew as we were older than them that eventually they were going to break, break mm-hmm. through and, and it was time for us lot to move on. What about, you, you mentioned the boss there several times, how intimidating is it to walk into a managerial office like Sir Alex Ferguson? It, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny really because he's, he's an absolute fantastic, fantastic guy. <laughs> like unbelievable individual. In terms of he would help you in in any way he could to progress your career, or he'd always be on the end of a phone, or he would do anything for you. But in terms of intimidating, it, it is funny because we'd all speak, and you know, but you'd get advice sometimes. It'd be wrong stuff. The older place in, why don't you just go and knock on his door and ask him why you're not playing? <laughs> so, <laughs> you think at the time well, it's a great idea. You knock on his door, he tells you to come in, and before you know it, he's got his arm around you and he's walking you out, and you've never said a word. <laughs> uh, so, so he was he was intimidating in that way, but but really he was he was more of a uh, a father figure to I would say just about everybody in in the club. He, he just wanted he wanted the club to succeed so much, and 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 nobody would ever stand in the way of that. Is there any person or individual that maybe had a, a tremendous impact on you in that in those early years in that time? Whether it was another player, whether it was a coach, maybe not. The, the top dog at the time in Sir Alex Ferguson, but somebody else that really impacted you? I mean, we had some some unbelievable, like, coaches and, and players at that time. And from a playing point of view, uh, Brian Robson was was the captain, and he was captain of England as well at the time. And as, a, as an individual, he was unbelievable. He would, you know, re- on regular uh, like, <laughs> occasions, just come into the locker room of the reserve team or of the, uh, the youth team. And he'd just throw in, you know, buckets full of gear that he'd been given free because he's a sponsored player. And he would just say, go and take your pick. And anything that you wanted, you would have to go and see see, uh, see, see the, the captain. And, and, and he would, you know, always try and help you out. And, mm-hmm. and as coaches, we had a lot of, you know, famous people coaching us. We had Nobby Styles coached us, Brian Kidd, you know, who went on and, and then coached the first team. But our youth coach was by far and away possibly the best coach that, that I'd 
worked with or that worked with youth footballers at that time. And, and he was phenomenal, what he did and, and his methods of, you know, getting players through probably stuck with me a little bit in terms of, you know, the, the coaching scene. Well, you mentioned then that you, eventually you were sold on and you were sold to St Johnston in Scotland back in 1992. How different was that to what you'd been previously used to at Manchester United? It was, it was different, but I was, I was desperate to get away and, and play. Um, and I, it was a great move for me at that time because I was, I was in the, the Scotland youth setup because my, my father's Scottish, so I, I represented Scotland at under-18s and under-21s, and it seemed like a natural progression to go and play in the Premier League in Scotland because, you know, I was, you know, my international career was in Scotland, and I thought that might go hand-in-hand in, hand in, in sort of get, getting my progression up. In terms of when I went, it was fantastic because at that time, you know, Scotland uh, probably had more money than England in terms of recruiting players. Mm. If you remember, a lot of the England internationals went up and played for Rangers. Uh, Graham Souness like sort of revolutionised the game up there, and, and uh, so there was there was a lot of talent going into Scotland because I think they had the first TV contract, live TV contract in in the UK. So it it was good to play against them, but the difference between being a Manchester United player and playing probably anywhere else in the world, other than you know Barcelona, Real Madrid, and, you know, <laughs> it, it was unreal because. When I had the ball at Manchester United, I had nine other players wanting the ball off me. And when I got the ball at St Johnston, all I could see was like, people's numbers and people running away. <laughs> so it was a real transition to try and get used to you know, a different style, a different way of playing. And obviously, you're then sort of earning a, a first-team career where it becomes all about results. So you know, that's when the, the pressure and, and, and all the other things kick in off you know, your, your results versus development football, you know, really changes you. For those unaware, Sean, what, what type of a player were you? I was a, I, I would say I was a, I was a midfield player that turned into a fullback. Mm. Um, and, and, and maybe that was a good thing because I did end up having a career. But mm-hmm. I, I would say that I wasn't good enough to play as an elite fullback because I don't think I was quick enough. Mm. But I was, I was probably like, I was, you know, technically good on the ball, and I didn't, I didn't mind the tackle, and 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 in the the old like in the early nineties, you know, you're allowed to go through and tackle somebody, you know, and if you missed one, it was all right. Then you missed another, and then it was a warning, and it, you missed another, and it was no more, please. And then then you got a yellow card, and then before you know it, the game's over. So whereas whereas now, I, I think if I'd have missed a couple of tackles that I'd have, I missed when I was playing early on. I don't think I'd have seen much, much more of the field. And not to uh, discredit anybody who was a fullback at your time, but are you shocked or surprised at how much that position has evolved over time and what we see fullbacks doing nowadays as far as getting into the attack and being involved yeah. so much on the other side? I mean, I think the fullback position now is probably – so when I played it, it was more of – and this is like you just said, that, it's not a disrespect to the position, but people mm-hmm. got moved to fullback – Mm-hmm. If you couldn't accommodate them, you know, in other positions, mm-hmm. you still had to be a, a decent enough player to, to get a game. But but now I think people are looking at, at the fullback position and you know investing money in it. I know Pep Guardiola did it a few years ago, and you know they've recognised the fact that you know the fullback position can be the outlet, both in defensive situations, 
and in attacking moments. And, and you know, it's become a real important position where the attributes and the strengths of that position are completely different to what they mm-hmm. used to be. I'll tell you the one thing, Sean, which, which had me scratching my head, and perhaps this is um, an indictment of, of my footballing knowledge or the lack thereof, um, was a couple of years ago when Pep Guardiola started it, when the fullbacks would manoeuvre inside and took into the centre of midfields. I'd never seen that before. And then we saw a little bit of it here in Major League Soccer. I think it was Peter Vermees at Kansas City that started it on yeah. here. Um, what were your thoughts then, sort of piggybacking off of what Kendra had said there and, and the evolution of the fullback? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when, when I first saw that, I thought, well, that's a bit weird, just get the midfield player to do that job. Yeah. But then, you know, you, you, you read up and you, and you look a lot more and, and watch more games and, I remember reading Pep's book and, and you know, him, him explaining uh, the fact that he wanted an overload in midfield and, you know, and the ability to switch the ball to the wide player. But with that, you've got to be very disciplined. It's not just the fullback that has mm-hmm. that responsibility to go in midfield and, and, you know, and try and create an overload to keep possession. You know, you've, you have to tell a wide player who constantly, and the superstars, these wide players now, constantly wants the ball to stand there for, you know, 10 minutes without touching it. Mm-hmm. So it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of, you know, uh, practice on the training field but I'm I'm surprised that it really took off in other levels of the game because you know you need a lot of you know, a talent like mm-hmm. you know to, mm-hmm. to, to be able to do that but to be fair the, like you've you've mentioned the, the game's you know getting revolutionized a little bit and and people are being asked to do different things and I think that's that's brilliant for the future of of the game and brilliant for the future in terms of the young players that are coming through, they need to now learn just about everything that's associated with the game mm-hmm. rather than being a one-trick pony of mm-hmm. maybe just a goal scorer or maybe just a stopper. So uh, 1995 came around and you moved back to the UK with Hartlepool. Mm-hmm. You also had spells with Scunthorpe and Rochdale as well. Was was it always a name of yours to get back to England? Uh, yeah, at that, at that time, I, um, I had a chance to go to Kilmarnock, uh, who were playing in the Premier League. Um, because my old manager that signed me from Manchester United, St. Johnston, was then the manager at Kilmarnock. And he wanted me to go to Kilmarnock. And, you know, everything was good. And, you know, I, I had complete respect for them. And they're, a, they're a, a pretty good club in Scotland, is Kilmarnock. But I was still young and I, and, I, and I felt, you know, at 22, 23, that I might still have a chance of getting a couple of more moves if I play well. Mm-hmm. And I think once you get two, two, maybe three moves in Scotland, there isn't anywhere else to go because once you've done your St. Johnston, Kilmarnock, Motherwell type sort mm-hmm. of level, you're never really then going to get to Celtic and Rangers. You know, that's, you know, just out, out, outside of your sort of talent level. And then the next level behind that would have been, at that time, would have been Aberdeen and Hearts. And if you've had a couple of sideways moves, like your St. Johnston's, Kilmarnock's, you know, St. Marin's, Motherwell, then it's they're reluctant to take you to that next level, which would just be underneath Celtic and Rangers. So I thought for me to have longevity in a career and I always liked coaching. So I always had an interest in coaching and, and I felt as though that the network in England gave me a greater chance to prolong my career and also meet more people that would then extend into my second career. So you knew maybe early on that coaching was going to be something that you wanted to go into. I mean, there's a lot of players out there who say the closest I can get to a pitch after playing is coaching, but not everybody is made to be a coach. Yeah, I, I'm really early on. I, I knew that it was something that I wanted to do. And the reason being, I will say this, so the, the apprenticeship that you do in England, uh, 
there has to be so much education attached to it. Mm. So one of the education components is you have to take a coaching license. Mm. And back in the day then, it was called the intermediate license and full license, which would now be a B license and an A license. So I took the intermediate license as a 17-year-old and passed. But then I had to take the full license, the next level, within five years, or that level becomes null and void. Mm. So when I went back to England, and that's part of the other reason I wanted to go back, because I knew then I could take this coaching course. Mm -hmm. So I became fully qualified when I was 22. Mm. So that was really sort of the start of it. And then what I did when I moved back to, to play at Hartlepool, I also coached within the, the academy at Newcastle. So, I would, so I've been setting up that mm -hmm. second career for, for quite a while, I would have thought. Yeah. So then why in, in 2002 did you opt to, to take somewhat of a leap of faith and head over to Portland Timbers in USL? Well, that actually also came around from... So I was playing at Rochdale and... Um, I, I really liked my time at Rochdale. I liked, loved playing there. Um, and there were two managers. The, the first manager that signed me uh, was a guy called Steve Parkin, who ended up getting a move, a good move to the championship. And um, the next guy that came in was John Hollins, the old Chelsea uh, player, um, Swansea manager. And he was great. And, and playing under him was really good. It was really enjoyable. And then I got a phone call uh, from a friend of mine um, who said, do you want to come and coach in the off-season? Because uh, he had coaching camps. So I said, yeah. I said to my wife, do you want to go across? Yeah, no problem. So ended up, you know, arranging this sort of coaching gig. And then about a month later, he said, would you be interested in playing? <laughs> because Portland Timbers had just started up. He started up in 2001. Mm -hmm. The second season, he wanted somebody to come in. and I fit the profile. And at that time the players in the A-League also had responsibility to coach in the community. So I think it sort of fit Portland and fit me because they knew that I was getting into the coaching and I could still play. So it, like, it was a good business model for them that they had somebody that could go and coach in the community while also playing in the A-League. And, and I took the chance because I, I talk about, you know, the, the, from Rochdale, no, there's not many more clubs I can sort of go, go around. Um, I did manage to find one when I came back from Portland, but the, 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 the chance to go and play in a different country and an experience, you know, something different was, was too good to turn down. And did you know then as well, at that point, did you know that, or at the very least, did you get a sense of, of where soccer was going in the United States? Um, I knew it was getting, obviously, obviously better. I knew the MLS was, was you know, getting stronger. Uh, when, I, when I joined... It was um, it was difficult, really. A little bit probably similar to the to the situation I found myself in Scotland. Mm. At that time, the MLS were restricted a lot by the salaries that they were giving, so there were a lot of players playing in the USL in the A League at that time, who could have possibly played in the MLS but didn't fit the roster requirement at that mm. time financially, and they probably earned more money in in the league they were playing in. So we would get players on loan from you know LA Galaxy. And, awful but they had to sign them because it fit their roster requirement and salary cap so I knew that it still had quite a bit to go before you know it's obviously exploding you know but it was still restricted a little bit and and it, and it made the A-League uh, that I was playing in, uh, stronger and it, was a, and it was a good league to play in 
Did you and your wife thoroughly enjoy that experience? I mean, I know you ended up back there again, but at that time when you came over and took that sort of leap of faith to come to Portland in that position, did you enjoy it? Did you, was it everything you had thought it would be as far as even just Portland and in the area? Yeah, we, we loved it. I mean, it, it, it was uh, before children, so everything was great. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was, it was good. We, we lived downtown in Portland and, and uh, you know, it, was, it had a good feel to it. Met some really good people, and um, which which also then helped when you know I went back in 2012. Me and Lisa, you know, and I had my son then Finn as well, and he was eight year old. But we knew that it was an easy transition to go and take the leap of faith and, and go full time in 2012. So we did, we loved it in 2002, and then obviously made the move permanent. And uh, you know that that was a really good situation for us. It's almost like we had a trial period on the zone. Mm-hmm. in 2002 as a player and then obviously when the big chance came we had, we had no hesitation taken yeah and we'll, we'll talk a little bit later on about that coaching move to Portland Timbers but in 2002 you were thinking about winding down and retiring I know you had played for Halifax Town as well uh, towards the end of your career your, your playing career did, did you know at that stage Sean were you getting a little slower could you tell you weren't perhaps the player that you once was yeah and in, in when I left Portland because the 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 contracts in the league at that time were it was a it was an annual contract, but you only got paid for six months. So the players then went off and did their own things six months. So I asked whether they wanted to keep me on in the coaching capacity and, and they were trying to find me things to do in Portland. And then I got a phone call uh, from one of my, my best friends in, in the UK who took the job at Halifax Town, who had just got relegated from the football league. So then the conference. Uh, and at that time the conference league in 2002 was was exploding a little bit in terms of you know they, they wanted to make that full time and I think if you look down the pyramid now even the leagues below the conference uh professional yeah so I would say at that time when we went it was probably about 75 percent were professional um uh and then 25 percent were doing it part-time and because Halifax had got relegated we wanted to keep them professional um so he, he offered me the chance to go back and uh, be a player assistant uh, manager because they were on on uh, real hard financial times they were in administration at the time uh, the manager couldn't uh, give me just a contract to to be the assistant manager I had to be a player as well but he knew uh, and I let him know when he was picking the team that <laughs> I probably wasn't worth <laughs> worth worth to play uh, I would join in training every now and again but generally I took took a lot of the training sessions and and he did a lot of the management and he and he was and and He's showing now. Obviously, he's doing fantastic in the Premier League. But um, he 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 knew then that management was going to be his thing, and coaching would have been my thing, not playing, which <laughs> makes him probably a really good manager. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that is uh, Sean McCauley, the player. Next up here on the coach's corner, we'll talk all about Sean McCauley, the coach. Well, team sports may be sidelined right now. Team Spirit is going strong. Alina Health and Minnesota United have teamed up to support the frontline caregivers at Alina Health. Learn how you can help by visiting alinahealth.org forward slash caring for caregivers. And welcome back to Coach's Corner here. Callum Williams alongside Kendra D. St. Auburn and the assistant manager of Minnesota United, Sean McCauley. Sean, you last spoke to us when your career as a player was coming to an end. In 2005, though, you took the reins 
at the Academy of Sheffield Wednesday. Now, you're from Sheffield in the UK. Now, no doubt there are other clubs around the surrounding areas, but in the city of Sheffield, there's only two clubs, United and Wednesday. <laughs> what an opportunity that was for you in 2005. Yeah, it was... Um, like I said, I, I, I had the opportunity to, to work at Halifax as the assistant manager, and we were under so many constraints and, and you know... I had a couple of chances to move, but I wanted to stay with with Chris um, because obviously we were very close and we felt as though we were doing a really good job for the players and, you know, against all the financial constraints, we were quite successful. And and, and it was a tough time at, 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 in the league at that point because teams like Doncaster Rovers, Burton Albion, they ended up playing the championship, like getting promoted from the league we were in. So it, it was tough, but I felt as though we weren't progressing. Uh, both as you know, individuals, um, and also as as a team, as a club, it, it seemed to just want to settle for you know financial stability. So I had the chance to join Sheffield Wednesday, and, and it came around because my old manager at St Johnston got the Sheffield Wednesday job, and through different conversations with him and and me trying to help him, you know, on just stuff like where to live, how. <laughs> You know how to approach different things that are, you know, as you know, especially in the UK, different areas have completely different ways of life. And you know, I was just helping him along with a few things, and and then he said, "Would you want to come in and and work within the academy and you know be a link between the first team and academy?" And I think because he knew that I'd worked with senior players at Halifax, he'd had me as a senior player when when he was the head coach or the, the manager at St Johnston. He knew that I had a, a half-decent way of working with players of all different age groups. And I think he just wanted me as a link between making sure that the academy was run right and in relation to what he wanted from the first team. So it was, it was fantastic to join the club at that time, you know, because they'd just got, you know, promotion to, to, the, to the championship. Yeah, and you, you very nonchalantly dropped in the, the name Chris there. We're, of course, talking about... Uh, Chris Wilder, who is having fabulous success at the moment uh, with Sheffield United. How was it working under his guidance? And I know it's someone that you still keep in, in contact with regularly, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, at that time, it, it was brilliant because we were both, it was it was his first time job in, in full-time, you know, management. He'd worked in the, in the non-league uh, for a couple of years, been really successful in non-league for a couple of years. Uh, and obviously I was still playing in Portland and he rang me and said, will you come back and, and do this job? And I had no hesitation and working with him, even back then, you could see that his management style and his eye for a player and his and his drive to to get things done and, and you know, to lead players, to lead people, you know, was, was outstanding. And I've been really fortunate through through my career to work with, it's almost like a bridesmaid, really. Aren't I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I've been really fortunate to work with some really good players, uh, coaches, um, very closely with really good coaches, and and he is is he's right up there with with the best men. And and again, he's having a fantastic season, but he's still the same. If you know, if it was, I'm sure that we we might even bump into him one one day, and he and he would be absolutely no different to, to speaking to how you would speak to me on a, on a regular basis. So speaking, kind of going back to the academy and, and being brought on at Sheffield Wednesday, is there something specific, something special about players of that age that 
that academy group that you enjoy coaching the younger players that you enjoy fostering their kind of development and then you you said it yourself kind of that connection of the academy with the first team and yeah. how does that I, all work yeah it's it's a uh, because uh, I've been coaching academy football for for years really since since I was you know probably 22 uh when I first came back from Scotland and I got into the coaching schoolboy footballers and then you know, as, you, as you, you keep working with these players and, you, and you're working with them up to the age of 18, maybe 19 as young professionals. And it's it's a real, uh, it's a skill and it's a fantastic, uh, enjoyable experience watching somebody go from, you know, six, seven-year-old all the way through to playing the first team is, is something that, you know, you, you can't put into words how, how proud you are when, when they get through. The difficulty with that is, and I say this to a lot of younger coaches now, like especially youth coaches, you can never take credit for the ones that you get through because 99% of them don't get through. Mm-hmm. So if you take credit for the one, then you have to take responsibility for the 99% that don't make it. <laughs> so you've got to be very careful that you don't blow your own trumpet a little bit too much. But I, I, I have seen some good players at Sheffield Wednesday come through, uh, enjoy good careers. And, you know, the one that I would say that's playing regularly now um, who I had when he was like 12 year old is, is a guy called Leon Palmer who's, who's a full international for Scotland and he's, he's played you know probably over 350 games in the championship and I went back possibly to Sheffield a couple of years ago to see my dad and I went into the training ground Sheffield Wednesday and I went up and said so Chris at Sheffield United so I had like the, the best of both worlds really great day I went to both teams training and I bumped into Liam and uh, he reminded me of all the things I used to do to him and, and in terms of <laughs> He said, you know, it, it, it sort of made me uh, it made me mentally stronger to be able to cope with the demands of the game. So I think a lot of people, you know, it's not just about the uh, the X's and the O's and the good first touch and, you know, clean, crisp passing ability. You've really got to change these lads' mm-hmm. way of thinking in terms of what you need to do to make a, a professional footballer. So what kind of things did you do to him then? Uh, put put him in challenge. I put him in so many challenging situations, and he remember he remembers one this day. And and it's funny because when I was in Orlando, I lived around the corner from Luke Bowden, who ended up having a good career in the MLS. Yeah. But I got him through at Sheffield Wednesday, and he said the same thing. He said, "You just used to be on at me all the time." And I remember once with Liam, I had I had a he was an unbelievable player, Liam, in terms of his youth play, he could play in any position. But I had this, you know, little thing that I thought was a little bit soft. <laughs> so uh, so in terms of as the game's going on and you know I just restarted possession and I restarted every every restart of the game so the ball went out of play everything came from me and I would just chip it up to where Liam was and said to all the other players you know try and win it off him <laughs> so, just, so I put him in like a really tough situation but and he, and he reminded me the other day he says it, it, I knew you I knew he said I hated everything that you were doing at that time but I knew now I knew I know now what why you were doing it, and you know, I had to, I had to get stronger and get tougher. And Luke said the same thing. And you know, it's amazing that you you look back now, and it was only a, a few months ago when I was when I was back in Orlando that I went out for a few beers with with Luke, and and he was saying, you know, it was the best thing that he ever did was, you know, sticking to the regime and not falling out because a lot of players do fall out, sticking to it, and, and he ends up changing his life, and he's now living in the US after playing in the MLS. Yeah, and, and 2006 rolls around. Um, Paul Storick is, is let go by Sheffield Wednesday. 
Then 2009 comes around and Brian Laws was let go. Twice, you were caretaker manager at Sheffield Wednesday. Sean, should you have been given the opportunity? Um, I don't know, really. I de- definitely not after the first one. The first one was really successful. Um, maybe after the second one, you know, maybe then you could have said, and that's when a couple of other clubs started showing a bit of interest in me. And the club, you know, were reluctant to let me go. So maybe if they didn't want to let me go, then they should have maybe, you know, given me some responsibility of it. But through, through all of that, I never really approached it as if, well, this is a trial. And, and if I do really well, then, you know, I'll get the job. Because, it, it, you know, it wasn't my job. So out of the, the first time when, when Paul, Paul got fired. Um, so I played for Paul. Yeah. He got fired on the Thursday. Then on the Friday, I went in and his assistant manager, who was assistant manager when I played for Paul, he was the assistant as well, uh, said to me, well, I'm not taking it. So I said, all right. Then I got a call, call about 10 minutes later because he'd obviously said, listen, I want out as well. And then the other coach said he want out. So I was left on my own with a group of players and they were really good players. And, um, you know, we, we were successful, but the job at that time was never going to be mine because the chairman came out and said, you know, we're actively looking for a manager. And he said to me, he said, do you think you can take the team? I said, yeah, no problem. Because I don't think he realised what I'd done previously. Mm-hmm. So I said, yeah, no problem. Don't, don't worry about it. And I went and I, and I took the team and we won that game. Then we won again. And then we tied a game away at Wolves. And then we won a fourth game. And by that, that time, it was... Um, the momentum had changed to where we'd become a team at the bottom of the league to the team that was now getting into the playoffs. But the chairman had come out really early that it was in this process of interviewing managers and all that. And each time, you know, it was coming out in the media saying, we're going to interview somebody, we'd win another game. So it was sort of buying the chairman a lot of time off to be able to pick the right, the right guy for the job. Um, and, and, you know, during, during that period, it was, it was a pretty easy transition for me because I, I knew that I wasn't going to be the manager. I just made decisions on players mm-hmm. and made decisions on how I thought they should play. And it was really easy because Paul Sturrock had recruited really good players mm-hmm. and he just got into a, and I told him when, when it was, when it was late, he got into a, a little bit of a rut with, you know, the, you know, the, I would say the upper management, the politics, if you want to call it for a better word, he got, he got into, into that, sort of dialogue a little bit too much and he started to protect all these young players by saying you know to the crowd you know don't have a go at the players have a go at me Mm. and my opinion on that was uh and like I said I I said to the manager I said I don't think you should do that because sometimes players have to take responsibility for performance and I could watch when I was watching the team play that if there was any critical decision to make the players would take the easy option Mm. and they wouldn't take a risk and eventually we would sit deeper and deeper and then, you know, we'd lose a goal in the last minute. And then when I took the team, I just told them that it's not my job and you're going to take responsibility for the performance. And, and that's when we, we changed and started winning games because they knew they had nowhere, they couldn't hide behind me. Whereas I felt the players were hiding behind the, the behind Paul Sturrock. And we had really good players at the time. We, Glenn Whelan went on, Chris Brum went on, we had Magic Baguera as a centre-half who went and played in the World Cup. So we had really good, good players. Uh, but they were just a little bit, bit feared and a little bit. Um, they were they were they were allowed to take the easy option. 
So you never felt hard done in either of those two times that you weren't selected to be the the full-time manager replacing. I feel like that happens a lot these days when someone does get their chance to step in for better or worse, if someone yeah. was let go in front of them. Yeah. I, n- I never felt as though, you know, it, it's, you know, I never felt hard done by, I never felt, because again, going back to what you said earlier about the young players, I really enjoyed my job mm-hmm. working with the young players. So I, I had no problem in, in going back. And I would say the reason why I left in the end was poss- possibly to do with what we're talking about now is I'd taken the team on a couple of occasions. So people automatically then think, well, you should get the chance to do it. Mm-hmm. I never, you know, put myself on the, on the, in the shop, shop window saying, yeah, I want this if I do really well. So therefore when, you know, the, the term came to an end and a new manager came in, it started to get a little bit, you know, untenable for me because managers had turned around and said, well, do you want this job? And I'm saying, no, no, because I've got a good job. Mm-hmm. I like the job I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And because I've been, you know, semi-successful in, in taking the first team, they always were looking over the shoulder yeah. if they had two or three bad results. Mm-hmm. They knew that the club had a, an out, an ideal person to take the reins short term so they could make a decision on the manager. Mm-hmm. And that became a little bit difficult for me, um, which is why in the end, you know, they wouldn't let me move to another club. Uh, in the UK, but they allowed me to leave to move to, to Portland Timbers. Yeah. yeah, before we talk about Portland Timbers, describe to me um, global image sports and what that opportunity really gave you in, in North America. Um, I would say it was a, that went hand in hand with uh, us helping them and, and obviously them, them helping Sheffield Wednesday at the time. <laughs> it, it all came around really because of our chairman at the time was Milan Mandarich, um, and his chief executive was Paul Aldridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you remember, Paul, he did the deal for Tevez and, and uh, Mascherano at West Ham. And then he went to Manchester City, and uh, he was a really good chief exec. And they had these contacts because Milan was part of the original, original setup of, of soccer in the US, you know, out in San Jose. So, and he's a great guy, Milan, you know, and, and really passionate about his football. And they introduced me to a guy who owned GIS. Uh, and it was Global Living Sports. And, it, and basically what it was is we would, you know, try and market Sheffield Wednesday in the US. And while we're doing that, we would try and identify talent to come and play for Sheffield Wednesday. So it worked hand in hand with, you know, us wanting to get into the US to, to do some branding, marketing, and maybe look for investors as well, which was part of it. And then also it gave us the chance to, to scour the, some hidden talent that was out here and try and get them across to the UK and and, uh, and maybe sign a contract with Sheffield Wednesday. Did it give you the appetite to, to potentially want to come back to the US? I think so. I think that along with other things, I, I, you know, I'd got quite a few contacts out in the US. Uh, so I'd never really taken my eye off, you know, what was happening uh, in the US, uh, in MLS, you know, especially. Um, and yeah, it just gave me... <laughs> another sort of avenue or contact to, to, to network and, and, and create, you know, some opportunities that were being out here. And, you know, and even when I was at Sheffield Wednesday, you know, we would, we would often play against, you know, the, the gaffers teams, we played Austin, <laughs> you know, and, and I kept in touch. So, you know, when I was at Sheffield Wednesday, I sent Luke Bowden to, to the boss and I also sent James O'Connor and obviously he knew James, but I had a, I would say a 
a little bit of an influence in, in trying to help James make the decision to say, listen, not boot him out the door, but yeah, go and go and try and take take the job. So I'd always kept in contact with a lot of people that were they're doing good work out here. So yeah, it, it sort of whetted my appetite again. So you said you kept an eye on the league and in an eye on what was going on in the United States with MLS, but how were you shocked at all then when you came back and saw how much it had transitioned from when you were in the A League with Portland, or were you? It didn't surprise you because you knew that sort of the evolution that it was taking in this country. I was absolutely amazed at, at, at what had happened. A- amazed, and, I, and it's funny because I was due to come out on. Uh, it, I, I, it was my birthday, and I'd arranged a you know you know, well like in, in the UK we have <laughs> birthday parties and I'd arranged this big sort of pub crawl for for me and my wife and, and a lot of our friends. It was quite a few of us going out. And uh, Gavin called me to, to go out and, you know, to, to to take a game and watch a game. So I had to cancel the birthday plans and all that sort of stuff. And I, and I went to the airport to get on the plane, which they'd obviously booked me to, me to come out. And I didn't have an ESTA, didn't have a visa at the time. So I called him and said, listen, I've tried to get the visa. And it was like half oh, past five in the morning. I'm getting through on my phone and all that sort of Anyway, couldn't do it. And Gavin just said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll book you on tomorrow. And I thought, but that's... Like not what it was used to be like in Portland. If you wasted that money, like some, <laughs> somebody's going to get fired. Here. You know, I, I don't want to get anybody fired. And he just said, "Don't worry about it. Come out, come out tomorrow." Uh, tomorrow. So they booked me the same flight the day after. And then when I landed, you know, I, I went, you know, to the stadium obviously, and then I walked back downtown to the hotel I was staying in. And I obviously through playing there knew, you know, where I was walking around, and the amount of uh, Timbers flags logos, supporters, supports clubs that I walked past uh, was phenomenal. Like compared mm-hmm. to we couldn't even get two lines in the local paper when we were when we were playing in 2002, whereas now it was like headline news. So it was more, again, that sense of belonging and that lure of Portland rather than just Major League Soccer in general? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure if somebody would have said to me, you know, there's a chance to do this, this and this in a, in a different market, you know, I would have seriously considered it at the time when I moved to 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 Portland um I I ended up having it was it was really weird I had had, the day before I left I went and I talked with uh, another club where Darren Ferguson was and um because we grew up together um in the in the system and you were the same age played Scotland together so we were quite close Mm -hmm. and uh, he wanted me to go in as a as a coach uh at then it was Peterborough at the time, and um, I went down and spoke to him. And as I was flying to Portland, he called me and said, "Listen," he said, uh, "Peterborough's off." So I went, "All oh, right." Which I'm then thinking, "Well, I was going to take Portland anyway, and I was going to call you <laughs> when I got back." And he said, uh, "I'm going not not to Forest. Uh, I've got the Forest job." So I said, "All right, well, that's changed things a little bit." <laughs> you know, uh, I was living in Sheffield. Nottingham's pretty close to. To, to where I was living. So then I went and spoke to Portland and, you know, uh, got blown away by what they were doing really. And, and my mind was just about made up. And then I'm on the plane in the airport coming back from Portland to go back to, to Manchester to get home to Sheffield. And uh, he called me again and went, Forrest is off. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, and he said to me, he said, I don't know if Peterborough's back on either because I might get sacked from Peterborough. Because what had happened is he, um, he Peterborough were taking Nottingham Forest for an illegal approach 
of Darren and all that. And it came out in the... So when I, I got back to, to Manchester, I got the News of the World, the Sunday paper, and it was all over the inside back page that you know, it had been tapped up. And so I'm thinking, oh, I think the Port- Portland thing looks really, really comfortable <laughs> at the minute. Uh, so that was... And, and to be fair, I think the club would have wanted... Sheffield Wednesday at the time might have wanted compensation uh, from another English club, whereas they, they were brilliant and they allowed me to leave uh, to go to, to go to Portland. And then um, 2015 came around, MLS Cup champions. And I think it's safe to say at the beginning of that campaign, Sean, no doubt the Timbers had a very good roster. And I don't know if it's because of the size of the market or, or what have you, but the Timbers certainly weren't in, in my mindset when I thought of who could potentially be MLS Cup champions that year. So how did you do it? What were the key factors in winning the championship that year? I would say the key factors is we had good players, um, we had a good team spirit, and we fell lucky at the right time. They're the key factors. Delving dip, deeper into, into that was, um, you know, we made, you know, a couple of good signings. You know, Liam Ridgewell was a good signing for us. Now Borges was a good signing. And we just had a, a way of playing that seemed to suit everybody. Um, but we were always one of them teams. I think we finished first one year and then didn't get beat. Then we missed out on the playoffs. Then the next year we, we, uh, we, I think on the last day of the season, when when we won it, we might have not got in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I think there was like I think something like in the sixty seventh minute we were second in the in the table. You know, by another minute we were like fifth or sixth, and then we ended up get, getting in the playoffs and uh, we secured the the home game, which obviously then, you know, and then it's it's all about, you know, as, as much as a coach wants to make it about, you know, what he said and what he's done, it, it, a lot of it was down to luck in the end, you know. We were quite fortunate in the in the playoff game against KC and um, we two were, points. yeah, the two posts. Um, and that was a good game. It went either way, but we scored late on in extra time to take it to a penalty shootout. And then... You know, the final, we, we were quite fortunate. We had a couple of good refereeing decisions. Although we played better than, I thought, Columbus on, on the day. But the score sometimes, you know, allows you to play a little bit better. But but I think we deserve to, to, to win it. And when I talk about, you know, the, at the start, the, you know, a couple of the key factors, we had really good players who also knew their role in the team. Mm. You know, we had uh, Jack Dewsbury, who, you know, was when I first came over, uh, in 2012, you know, I was saying to people back home, there's, there's really, there's one or two good players, but there's one who I think could could go and play straight away in, in the championship. And it was Jack, because he just knew what to do at the right time and his attitude and his way of working. And then coming to that season in 2015, I think he played in both fullback positions and he's a central midfield player. He would play in all the diff- different midfield positions. Um, and he also knew his role in terms of you know, if he played really well in one game and didn't start the next, it didn't cause any problems in the locker room. He got on with it. And then, you know, if he was on the bench, he'd come on for the last 20 minutes and, and change the game for us. And I'm not saying we were in a losing position. Sometimes we were in a winning position and we needed somebody like him to go on the field and just calm everybody down. And that's where, you know, the signings of Liam Ridgewell and, you know, Nat Borchers, you know, experienced players at the back there, did really well for us. And then we also had goals in the team up front. and. When you look at the two strikers we had, and you know, both have done really well in the league, which is Fernando Adi and, and Maxi Ruby. 
one would play, one would come off the bench, the next one would come off the bench and play. And then uh, uh, I would say at the right time, we had the three players who played in midfield just completely hit form, at, like unbelievable form at the right time, which is Nagby, Valeria and Chara. <laughs> that's not a bad trio. I, I know. And, and you know what, Kimberly, that's, that's the thing that... <laughs> You know, it's really difficult to, to understand because before 2015, people were saying, oh, well, they're okay. Mm-hmm. Once they got to, to, to where they are, Diego Char was an unbelievable player. And the stats prove that with Portland Timbers, when Diego doesn't play, yep. I think they have like an unbelievable losing record mm-hmm. uh, compared to when he's in the team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Diego was, Diego, in terms of his ability to finish and, and create like, the final ball was, was phenomenal. But, you know, it's only now that, that people... You know, after 2015, people recognise that Darlington Nagby is one of the best talents that that's, that will be in the league, that's you know, ever been in the league. Really, really talented football. So my question for you is kind of twofold. First of all, you said that, you know, it's tough for coaches to take credit for things because a lot of time it's just the players and sometimes it's luck. But I, I've seen more than one quote say that you're an incredible person and coach when connecting the players with the rest of the coaching staff. You have this sort of interpersonal skill of communication. How would you say that plays into the successes that you've had, that the teams you've coached on have had? And then, and second of all, how important is it to have players that understand their roles and embrace them on on any given club to find success? I think um, the, the, the last part of that is in terms of having a squad of players that know their role is absolutely vital. And and you've also it's also got to be to where you don't just make people comfortable. So mm-hmm. while we had you know a player in Jack who would go in and do the job for the team, he was also motivated to to want to play every mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. But he was just respectful in in terms of his teammates and, and the coaching staff. And you know having that team spirit is absolutely vital to 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 everything. So then going back to the first point in terms of my own position and role, I would say that. Generally, in terms of, you know, in how I feel, you know, the, the bond needs to be with the coaching staff and the players. I don't really like the players and the players don't really like me in terms of, I'm not, they wouldn't be my first invite to a barbecue on my back garden. But likewise, they probably don't want me in a nightclub with them because we're just completely different beings. But I understand where they're coming from, from a job perspective and from a work perspective. So, uh, while we're not very, I would say, I wouldn't be close with many players mm-hmm. that I've been with uh, off the field, mm-hmm. uh, spend much time with them, we don't take strength in that. But on the field, I'm unbelievably close. Mm-hmm. I th- I feel as though I want to be really, really close to the players mm-hmm. when they're on the field. I feel as though that's the, the, the role that I need to have. I do think that they should have a complete, open and honest relationship with any manager, mm-hmm. head coach. I think as soon as, it's just my opinion. I think as soon as assistant coaches start having more of a closer relationship or any staff for that matter, other than the manager, mm-hmm. then I feel as though that can distort mm-hmm. communication lines. So I try and keep everything uh, that's away from the field completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get home and get to my back garden and not go to the back <laughs> uh, But, but I, do, I do think that they should have a really close relationship with the manager, mm-hmm. uh, which the players do. And I think my link would be understanding what I think they need on the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where I hope I can add value to, to Adrian and, and the rest of the staff. And, and I think I added value to the, to the other clubs that I was at. 
I have an understanding of what I think a player's going through and what I think he needs to give to the manager. Sure. You know, it doesn't need to impress me. Yeah. So I can say, it's to, but it does need to impress the manager. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to then relay that information of what will make him seen by the manager uh, and how he needs to do it. So before we get on to Orlando, one individual that has spoken very highly of you in the past, you've brought him up several times already, Sean, is Liam Ridgewell. Um, during pre-season, I was fortunate enough to spend some time with a couple of uh, individuals at Portland Timbers. We had a day out. And um, uh, they were full of Liam Ridgewell stories. How important was he during that 2015 campaign and then throughout his time at Portland Timbers? He, he was um, he was brilliant. And, and, and he's somebody that, you know, you know when you say pay it forward, I, I, I had a lot of, you know, people wanting to help me when I was younger. And, and I'm now probably in that position where I can help Liam because he, he wants to transition and get into coaching. And, and I feel as though he would have a good chance of getting into coaching because of, of his, uh, like what you said, Kinder, about the interpersonal skills, he's got them. And he's able, to, he's able to lead a group. And when he was captain for us, the whole place changed. Uh, and we didn't get more professional. We just got, we just got more, um, we just got more, I would say, the, the players just took more responsibility because he was holding them accountable mm-hmm. from the locker room. Mm-hmm. And it was brilliant. And what he also did was he wasn't afraid of, you know, telling players what to do on the field. But he also, on the other side, was never afraid of taking all the players out. Mm-hmm. You know, and he would, and, and hear stories of, you know, people in the, the NFL, and, you know, people, the richer players buy the younger players and all that. He was all about that. He was all about team spirit and, you know, you win together, you work hard together and you play together. And he wanted everybody to be together. And and he would, you know, fight for things from the club in relation to, you know, what he, f- he thought the, the locker room deserved. And generally he got them. And if he didn't get them, he would pay for them himself. Mm. He, was, he was really good. It was like a, a catalyst for, I would say, you know, they, they talk about, you know, the, the great Manchester United team of, of of that era where, you know, the locker room would sort out the new player when they got signed. Mm. Liam sort of drove that that locker room to, to be similar. You know, you came in and it didn't really take much from the coaching staff to say, well, this is how we do it at Portland Timbers mm. because, because Liam was there and, mm. you know, he wouldn't allow, you know, stuff like that to go on. So let's go... And fast forward to, to sort of mid-2018, and a, a gig came up on, on the other side of the country in Orlando with one of your former players that you'd coached in James O'Connor. First of all, how difficult was it to, to move away from Portland? But second of all, I, I imagine that transition was made a little easier because of the relationship you, you had with O'Connor. Yeah, it was easy to go. It was easy to go and, you know, help him. Um, I felt as though... At Portland, I'd, I'd sort of achieved quite a lot. And and then, you know, it's not as if there's, there's always, you know, there's always next week, there's always the next win, there's always something you can work towards. But I just felt as though it was going in a, in a different direction and a direction they needed to take because, you know, the club needed to go and follow what the, the new coach, Gio, wanted. Um, and and that, when Joe first came in, I loved working with Joe because he was he was fantastic and 
anybody you speak to about Jewish, he really is 100% a great individual and a really good coach. And it proved that, you know, during that season, I was there for six months and, and we had a good run, you know, so it wasn't just, you know, oh, the club was all previous. Mm-hmm. When Joe came in, he just kept it going and, and he mm-hmm. did a really good job. And then when James got the job, I thought to myself, well, this is the chance now from a personal point of view to make another coach and another team successful because they've never been in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would have been relatively easy to, you know, turn them around and, and get them in the playoffs. But but it, it proved that um, the work that goes on behind the scenes uh, all needs to, to go in the same direction. Um, and I'm not talking about in terms of the people that are there now. I'm talking about basically I think the recruitment mm. of the players wasn't probably done in a strategical manner to allow the club to be successful for the next four or five years. I do think they're turning it around now, though. I think they've had a really good recruitment uh, process. But when we went, there was a lot of players there that were coming out of, you know, maybe careers that, well, I, I think if you look at the squad that James inherited, I, I think mm-hmm. there might only be two or three that are still playing. Well, and, and it's tough to speak about a club that you, you know, have moved on for in Orlando City. And of course, Adrian Heath has moved on from Orlando City. So he's, it comes up in conversations at times. But mm-hmm. with kind of the coaching carousel that they've had going on there, have you ever seen anything quite like it? I mean, in all your coaching experiences, I mean, you said it yourself, you wanted to go down there, kind of help it and help, help James O'Connor grow this thing and be successful. And yeah, it, it, it was. Um... It, it was strange. I, I, I do think that, um, I think they've got potential to, to be a really good, you know, MLS club. Mm-hmm. I think what they, they, you know, they fell into maybe a little bit of a trap when, when they let go of, of the boss. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that was a strategic decision more than a, it was maybe a personality decision. Sure. Because they were getting pretty close to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then they appoint uh, Jason, who at the time was, I would say, you know, touted to be one of the better US-based coaches, which I think that's the route that I think they wanted to follow in terms of being an MLS club. It's like a, almost like a guarantee of, you know, well, this is near enough getting us the best chance to succeed. When that didn't work, then they went to the ex-player who played in the USL, which was James, and he had a really good affinity with the supporters. Mm-hmm. But realistically, I think the club needs to go in, in more of a, you know, Hispanic South American route mm-hmm. because that's what, the ownership wants, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's really difficult mm-hmm. to recruit players when, you know, I would say the, 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 the club culture was probably more geared towards a South American style mm-hmm. than maybe a European or American style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now I think they've got that. Um, and I, I was there, I, I was with Oscar for a couple of weeks and mm-hmm. I think they've done all right with the recruitment. And I think they've done all right in appointing that manager Mm-hmm. So I think they'll have a chance to succeed, whether they do or not. Uh, you know, that's something that we can all wait, wait and see. They're not in our conference, so if we beat them <laughs> in the final, <laughs> then I'll, I'll be the second happiest man alive because I think Adrian will be the, the most happiest. <laughs> if indeed. Uh, well, Orlando City's loss was Minnesota United's gain. Uh, next up, it's all about Sean McCauley at Minnesota United on Coach's Corner.
Welcome back to the final segment of Coach's Corner. Callum Williams and Kendra D. St. Auburn here, alongside the assistant manager of Minnesota United, Sean McCauley. And that's where I really want to get this segment started, Sean. How did the Minnesota United opportunity come to pass? Um, I think it was as basically, you know, from, from a really successful team that the uh, time the club had in the previous season, they, they felt, you know, a restructure, you know, would help the club move forward. And, you know, people have changed job roles and, you know, a new opening came up and, you know, I, I jumped at the, the chance, you know, to work uh, for Minnesota United. And, and, and I would say that a high, you know, factor in that was, was to work again or to work with Adrian. You know, I've had a couple of chances in the past to, to work with Adrian. It's just never really come off. And, and now this opportunity is come up and I'm, and I'm absolutely delighted about it. What is the attraction to Adrian Heath? And not just Gaffer, but, but the, the coaching staff that he has assembled together as well. I, I think the, the attraction is, is, first off, I'll say the attractions, obviously, you know, Adrian is, is, is building something that's going to be really special and, and long-term for Minnesota United, you know, and through all the, you know, uh, previous years that they've had, you know, they've had a lot of ups and downs. You know, I feel as though that, you know, everybody has, has, has pulled in the right direction to get the team going in the direction that they want to go in. And I think once you get it there, a little bit like what I saw Port and Timbers, once you get there, it's, you know, it's about sustaining that and keeping it there and constantly then challenging. And, and as you know, like the Sporting KC, once you get there, it's, it's, it's difficult to come out of. You have to have a real meltdown to come out you can come out for maybe for one year, but you know to have you know successive years without making it. Whereas, I think once you get over that red line and start consistently being in the playoffs, today, that's when you think you start challenging for things. And then the the opportunity to work with Adrian, uh, just knowing that his football philosophy, the way I know he works with players, we've spoke a lot before in the past, um, and I believe he, he suits my style as well. And, I'm hoping that you know I'll be able to to bring something that that will help the team succeed. What would you say that specific style is when you say it's going to suit your style as well? The way Adrian works with players, you know, what he kind of had going on with Minnesota United. We talked a little bit about the communication aspects and your ability to get players to kind of do what they need to do to be successful. Is there anything else that you can say for your style or your sort of philosophy on coaching? I would say Adrian's really, really intense. Mm-hmm. Like he wants. Um, a high level of intensity throughout everything and every training session. And just through sheer enthusiasm, you know, I, I like that intensity as well. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of knowledge of the game, he has a real, real deep knowledge of the game. And, and this is something that possibly, you know, a lot of people maybe don't know or because he definitely doesn't shout about it <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. But his previous experience suggests that he's possibly one of the most successful in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, he's managed in the Premier League and taken he's, he's you know been part of teams that have succeeded in the Premier League. He's managed in the Championship. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's managed with some of the greatest managed, managers in England. You know, he's been a coach with, with some of the greatest managers in England. He's played at an unbelievably high level. And, you know, and now he's, he's shown 
the consistent success in the US, mm-hmm. you know, with, with different teams and different leagues. But he's the type of personality that never really talks about himself. <laughs> so so it, it's difficult for people to understand because because mm-hmm. he, he comes across as just dealing with the here and now. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm fortunate enough to have known all that previous history and I know that I'm coming into something that's really strong. And what about um, the other coaches that you work with consistently as well? You know, Ian Fuller and, and Stewie Kerr. It, it seems like the four of you are, are almost inseparable at times. It seems as though there's a very good bond and a really good atmosphere behind the scenes. Yeah, a really good team spirit. The, the lads that... that and, and, I, and I will say this, when I, when I first arrived, uh, the first day the manager picked me up and took me, took me out for a meal with him and his wife, the second day, Ian Fuller picked me up and I went out with Ian, you, uh, Dirkie. And, and it seemed to me then that it wasn't just within the coaching staff that's the good team spirit. I would say it's across the whole of the, the club as this way of, you know, working. And then the day after that, I was slightly hungover, but Amos picked me up and we had a coffee together. So that was a good thing. He knew what I needed at that time. Um, but I've, I've also worked with Amos McGee before. So it's, so it's not just... The four of us, even though we do spend a lot of time together because that's the job. And, you know, when we get going again, it's going to be really intense because we'll be inseparable because of the fixture list and because of everything else that's going to go with it. Um, so we're fortunate that we do, you know, get on with each other and the personalities align. Uh, but I would say it's not just us four. I've, I've, I've seen that welcome from everybody, like I said, the second day when I, when I met you, when you guys. So what would you say about the roster? I mean, we talked, I was just going to say, what are your impressions of Minnesota United this far? And I, we just got from you the family kind of atmosphere. But what would you say of the roster? What do you feel like this team is is capable of? And it's early on in 2020, but your impressions? Well, when we start back, um, we've got six points. And if you'd have said, well, you can start with six points, then everybody go, well, so I mean, it's going to have to be a new start again. Mm-hmm. What I would say is what's not changed from from when we did have that, you know, that abrupt end to what, to what was a fantastic start for us. We had a, a really good tight-knit group and we built uh, a good depth to the squad. It was a really good depth. So you've got the likes of uh, the lads who weren't even travelling, like Jacori and, mm-hmm. and Musa. They weren't even in the, in the roster to travel, but they're good, good players. And I think that that might be good for us and you've always got, as a coach, you've always got to be optimistic and look on the positive side. But having that group that we've got, um, while we may not have the, you know, international superstars that, you know, sometimes the league want to, to you know, to, to promote, I think we've got a really good, solid depth, which I think when the new season starts again, well, standards in good stead because I think a lot of these players are going to need to be used because there's going to be fixtures coming up every two or three days. And that's where I think our advantage might be. Yeah, how do, how do you compare this roster compared to previous teams that you, you've worked on over the years? I would say it's, um, it's very similar in terms of if you look at the units. Um, we've got fantastic goalkeepers, you know, and, and it's not just one. We've got a group of goalkeepers that are really good. We seem to have a very, very solid defence. And we were talking about fullbacks earlier on. We've got fullbacks that like to attack as well. But the defenders like defending. Mm-hmm. We have a good group of midfield players, 
and with you know what we've seen from pre-season with Luis, and I'm sure that he'll drive the other centre forwards and the strikers on, you know, like Mason, the younger player like Mason. We now have centre forwards that can score goals. What I also think, and I think this might have come through a conversation with you, Carl, when you know when when we were earlier in pre-season or maybe in Portland even, we have a way of, and and I think this is what something that you you made mention to, a different way of playing as well. You know, we can, you know, at any moment, you know, maybe change a couple of players and it changes the whole dimension of the the team. Yeah. So we have that in-game change that can help, you know, and we saw that, you know, you know, with when when Aaron Schoenfeld comes onto the field, you know, in, in the games early season, it's almost like he offers a, a different challenge to the opposition, which also is a really good thing. So I would say that the previous rosters that we've had when we've been successful. We've had um, we've had players that do what the job is for them to be in the team. Uh, we don't have central defenders who want to be midfield players. We don't have uh, centre forwards who want to drop into the midfield and be number tens. We have people that want to play in their positions, and they're really successful at doing it. Now, if we can maintain a level of consistency and and you know get momentum in in terms of results. I think we'll we'll be okay. We'll be be difficult to play against. I've got to ask you as well, um, after years of rivalry and hatred and bloodbaths, how good is it to finally be on the the same side as Ozzy Alonso? You stole my question. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to play a word association game. I say Ozzy Alonso. (laughs) You know what? And um, it's funny because... um, I've had him also as uh, when he was in the All Star team for a short spell, mm-hmm. and he's a, a an unbelievably nice guy. And I never realised just how nice a guy until you work up close with him. He's an unbelievable like human being to start with, and you never get that impression when he's on the field, and especially when you're playing against him. Uh, but he's a fantastic human being. And then also like like I saw it firsthand with Diego Char and Darlington Magby, he is an unbelievable talent. So I, I, I was pleasantly surprised, more than surprised, um, about his personality switch because on the field he's a completely different animal to when he's off the field. And his attitude towards training and everything is, is first class, which is why he's been a top, top player for many, many years. And, and again, going back to it, many, many bloodbaths, but we're both on the same team now. So uh, I, I can't wait to, to to see the way he used to perform against Portland Timbers on a regular basis for, for the team that I'm, I'm helping. Do you liken him at all to, um, like, I mean, we, we can say Diego Char just because of the positioning, but uh, is maybe a Liam Ridgewell in the way that he kind of Pete holds people accountable and in check? But, like, to me, Ozzy doesn't seem insanely vocal, um, or maybe we just don't get, get a chance to hear it. I mean, what would you... Who would you liken him to maybe on, on another team that people would be familiar with? I, I would say he's got leadership qualities like Liam in terms of, you know, the players respect him so much. Mm-hmm. Like it's unbelievable how much they respect him. And he, and he's not as as much as a vocal leader, but, mm-hmm. you know, he can he can say things that, that make people turn their head and, and stand mm-hmm. up. And then he's also got just the, the little nod where people know that things need to improve or, mm-hmm. or it's a well done. So I would I would liken him a lot to that, and I would I would liken him also, you know, to to maybe more like a Diego Chara mm-hmm. in the team where, you know, when he's not playing, it, it it sort of affects other players because he does so much work for everybody else that's sometimes maybe hidden in terms of 
the positions he takes up, which allow other players to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, he's he's been you know a phenomenal player over the years, and and it's just fantastic because eventually he's going to go and have a second career. It could even be coaching because I think his knowledge of the game in terms of way he plays is, is fantastic. Um, and eventually, hopefully, I'm going to retire sometime and I will look back on Ozzy as being one of the best players that I've, I've worked with. Well, you're 47 now, which is prime age, really, for, for a, a coach. It, has there ever been any desire, maybe even opportunities, to, to go out on your own and, and try and be a head coach, Sean? Um, this... That's a question that I get asked, you know, a, a hell of a lot. And I, and I always say to people, I've never turned a job down. So when people say, well, do you want to be one? I've got to get offered one to, to decide whether I, whether I want one or not. Um, I did have a couple of, of clubs come in for me, but I didn't get the chance to speak to them when I was at Sheffield Wednesday. So in some respects, maybe that time might have gone for me. I, I, I don't know. But one thing is I'm not afraid of... You know, doing the job I'm doing now, and I'm not afraid of moving into a, another position, whether that be in terms of you know a different club in a different in a different environment with the youth team. All I, I like doing is I like getting on the field and working with players. Um, I do think the modern day head coach or the modern day manager now, uh, as, as we were calling back home, their skill set has to be you know. Uh, you know, they have to cover a lot of uh, bases with, with what they need to do in their daily routine. Um, and I think you need a lot of experience for that, which I which I don't have. Uh, but obviously somebody has to start somewhere, but it's not something that I'm in any rush whatsoever to take um, a, a head coach's position. But like I said, if, if somebody said to me, you know, what was it, 15 years ago or whatever, when, when I first did the chef Wednesday job, you've got to do this tomorrow, then you just say, okay, I've, I've got to do it. So last but not least for me is just how do you feel like you're settling in in Minnesota, your family settling in? I know before we popped on this, you were talking about waiting for your furniture to get delivered, but how yeah. do you feel like you've settled into Minnesota? Uh, yeah, it's, it's been really easy. The, the transition has been really easy because of the people. Um, my family's found it really easy. We, we, we um, were talking actually today, we, we were on a, on a walk uh, on our social distancing <laughs> once a day exercise. Um, and we're talking now how very much Minnesota reminds us of Portland, of Oregon. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of the way of life, the, the people, you know, the, the niceness that, that goes with it. Um, and that's not saying I didn't enjoy my time in, in Florida, but Florida was a bit different, a bit, mm-hmm. you know, a bit more edgy. Whereas this seems very much, you know, some, somewhere where that, you know, I could see myself staying for a long time because, you know, it, it's very similar to the lifestyle that, that we like and, and that we had in, in Portland. And, and that's helped by, you know, the people that, you know, surround yourself with. And, you know, everybody that, that I've met so far has been, been fantastic. Well, Sean, we are delighted that you're here and we really appreciate your time here today. Um, before we let you go, a message to the fans, if you would. Um, listen, I, I think the, the biggest and strongest message I can say is well done for everybody, you know, taking, you know, what are the recommendations for, for what we need to do to beat this opponent that we've got. And um, like every opponent that we face, you know, for the team, for the club, for everybody that's involved in Minnesota, you're doing a fantastic job trying to beat this opponent. It's a really difficult one, but I really respect and commend you for doing it. And I can't wait till we get past this opponent 
and start playing for real and, and then, you know, start getting the points on the table and, and seeing you all in the stadium again. Uh, so just stay happy and healthy and uh, we'll see you soon.